Praise God. Take your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 5. I know we're going through the book of Revelation and we're actually on this little series of evidences of the Christian faith. Uh, I'm skipping that this week because the gals are out on the women's retreat and where that's actually a series. Uh, so I want to do a message uh, called Making Sure You Know Jesus. Amen. Making Sure You Know Jesus. And it's critical that we make sure we know the Lord. Uh, I was sharing with a young man uh, out in front of Sprouts for about half an hour uh, a few days ago. Uh, and I was sharing with him because he was witnessing to people. And he had a uniform on. He belonged to the Missionary Church of Disciples of Jesus Christ. said it on his patch and so forth. Nice young man. I'd seen people there before. And I'd grab their little pamphlet, and I realized that they stated there that one of the things you have to do is keep the Sabbath. And I engaged him on the difference between the law of Moses and the law of Christ and so forth. And as I got talking to him, he said he didn't believe that salvation was a free gift, you know, but you, you have to earn it. And I was shocked, you know, that he claimed to be a Christian, claimed you have to earn salvation. And I quoted, of course, Romans 623, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And I quoted Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace we save through faith, that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave the only begotten Son, who believes shall have eternal life. Those types of passages. And then he told me boldly, well, I don't believe that we can know that we're saved right now. I don't believe we know we can, we can actually know that we're, we're saved. And I said, that's so contrary to the scriptures. And I shared this with him, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. I shared specifically verse 13. But I want you to look at verse 12 as well. It says, he who has the son has the what? has the life. Now he's talking talk about physical life. Everyone has physical life, but he who has a son has the life. He's talking about uh, not bios, uh, you know, he's talking about Zoe. He's talking about spiritual life. And whoever loves, uh, sorry, First John, yeah, 512. And then he goes on to say, which is really important. He who has a son has a life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. Then I quoted this verse to him, verse 13. His name was Albert, so pray for Albert, okay? Because I said it's awesome to see that you have a zeal. You're even out here trying to tell people about the Lord and, and so forth. But you, I want you to make sure you know Jesus and you can know you have eternal life. And then I said, 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. The great religions great false religions around the world. They can't know that they have eternal life. Muhammad himself, the founder of Islam, uh, questioned whether he would ever actually, you know, go to paradise. Of course, because they don't believe and understand that you're, that you're saved by grace through faith and you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which they deny. The popes in the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe. In fact, they pronounce an anathema, a curse on those who believe that they have eternal life and are genuinely saved and are in, will go into heaven because they've been justified by God uh, through the grace of God, by grace alone, through faith alone. You're condemned by the Council of Trent, which has been upheld by Vatican II in, the, in 1962. But look, look, I read this to him, or I quoted this to him, <laughs> These things I've written to you. I go, John wrote his letter, 1 John, that you may, uh, that, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And even after quoting that, and I even quoted Jesus in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said to his disciples, you know, don't rejoice, they have power over the demons, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I use these clear scriptures. And he still would say, well, I don't believe you can know it now. And I said, are you believing your group? Or are you going to believe the scriptures, you know? I get, I, it's probably about this animated as people are driving by in the parking lot, you know, I'm pleading with them because I want people to know Jesus, you know, and I like to witness whether it's on the streets or wherever, you know, and 
It breaks my heart when people have the Bible in their hands but don't know what it says. Or they're taught by some group that something contrary uh, to the Word of God. So pray for Albert, you know, sweet guy. And he did have a zeal, and I, I let him know. And we, we left on really a really good note of just encouraging him to dig in the Word and test what he's being taught and make sure he's trusting and following Jesus. Now, it's interesting here because uh, we have certain vital signs that we are physically alive, right? Many of you could take your pulse. I took my pulse last night. So I was laying in bed. I looked at the clock. You know, didn't have a second hand because I usually do it in a 15-second span. But uh, Lisa got a new, uh, you know, clock. You know, a new, uh, it's got the digits. So I thought, okay, I'll wait till it turns to over to a number. And boom. And I, and I do this because a few years back, a couple years back, I got this heart situation where I, you know, my, uh, you know, went in uh, AFib, you know, Mark's got it, same situation. But uh, thank God I don't have it now by the grace of God. I hope I don't never have it again because I had an ablation and everything's fine. And uh, you heard about that. That was a miracle because before my ablation, they were blown away. So they said, you get COVID, you're going to die. I got COVID the week after you said it, the two different... Uh, Cardio guys <laughs> uh, warned me, and one said, you w won't survive. And by the grace of God, I survived. A week later, I got it, and they took my, when I was in the hospital, it should have been worse than when they said my heart was only working at, you know, a very small percent, because I had AFib where my heart was running for like at least five, six months fast without me knowing it, because that wasn't one of those AFibs you could feel and go, what's going on? It was silent, and my heart was worn down. It was a for about five, six months, and they were tripping out that, I was alive, and he said, well, guess what? When I got, they gave me the test in the hospital, thank God. Uh, I wanted to know where I was at, and the guy that did the, you know, not the EKG, the, the echocardiogram, the deeper one, said, I can't say anything. I said, I didn't ask you. I thought that. I didn't say, I go, oh, don't worry, I'm not asking. I'm like, man, he's looked pale. And then I found out my heart was normal right then, before any surgery, as far as, uh, my, the strength of my heart had got built up, and I really believe that was the Lord answering the prayers of my brothers and sisters in Christ, man. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Pray for each other. And, and uh, the guy that checked my heart after that gave me an echocardiogram. They didn't want to give me an echocardiogram. They said, we don't think the insurance will pay for it because it came back normal when you were in the hospital, but we're going to do it anyway. They found a way to do it. And the guy that gave me the echocardiogram, he said, Joey goes, that's a miracle that your heart, it's called the ejaculation rate, boom, came up to normal. That's the grace of God. But they check your signs. To, you, 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 you have signs to see that you're alive, you know? And I, last night I stuck my, I have to do it every once in a while just in case, you know, because I don't do it enough. And I stuck it on there and I, and I was 72 heartbeats a minute, which is pretty good. It's like, thank you, Jesus, you know? Um, but you have vital signs that, that show that you're physically alive. Amen? You know, you have blood pressure. Reminds me of the guy who thought he was dead. And he went to the hospital and emergency room. And the emergency doctor checked his vitals and said, you are alive. And he goes, no, I'm convinced I'm dead. And he was in tears, you know. And he continued to tell him, I don't care what that says. And then the, you know, the doctor finally said, hey, do dead people bleed? And the guy goes, of course not. Dead people don't believe, bleed. And he quickly cut his hand. Doctor was frustrated, cut his hand. Blood starts squirting out. He goes, what are you doing? He goes, look, you're bleeding, you're alive. The guy got all excited. He started jumping up and down. He goes, man, I'm alive. He didn't seem like that. He goes, yes, you're alive. He goes, no, I found something new. He goes, what? Dead people can bleed, you know. So sometimes there's no amount of convincing somebody one way or another. But one thing for sure is you need to make sure that you are alive spiritually. There's nothing more important on this planet. I'm glad you're here this morning because we're talking talk about the most important thing you could possibly make sure of while you're on planet Earth, and that is that you are saved, that you have spiritual life. And there are certain vital signs you ought to examine to make sure that you are spiritually alive. I don't know of anything more important, that, not, not even close, than making sure you know Jesus before you leave planet Earth. Amen? you think of anything more important than that? I can't. You're in the right place, man. That's why we gather together. It's important to know Jesus. Important to be saved.
Now, I have an awesome wife. She's not here, so I'm going to say that right now. She's on the women's retreat, but no, I tell her that all the time. I have a wonderful wife, and uh, by the grace of God, and she's really on top of things, you know. I mean, I'm the kind of guy, because I'm always putting out fires and juggling a thousand one things, and da-da-da, I'd end up at the airport without her, probably without my passport. When we leave the country, you got to have your passport, right? And JoJo's smiling, because she's always making sure everybody has their passport. You know, everybody's, you know, everybody's got their passport. Otherwise, you're not getting on that plane, and you're not going on a mission trip to another country. Can you imagine having a vacation? You haven't had one for a few years and you're like, man, and you're going to Hawaii or the Caribbean or something like that and you're all excited and you got the last flight out for the next few days because it's just packed and you get there and you don't have your passport. You wouldn't be going. That'd be a big bummer, right? You'd be driving back and you know you're not going to get there in time and you'd be kicking yourself. Well, how much worse would it be if you die and face God and realize you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? How much worse would that be? That's why Jesus said there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There'll be people heartbroken because they missed out on all eternity. And by the way, you know, usually when we get our passport together, it takes minutes before we leave the home. You've had a lifetime to be prepared for the kingdom of God. There'll be no excuse, amen? You need to make sure you have your passport. So I love 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life contrary to Roman Catholicism, contrary to so many of the occults, you know, like the Jehovah Witnesses who believe only certain people, the 104,000, could actually be born again and have, know they have eternal life and be with God in his heavenly kingdom. The scriptures are very, very clear that we can know that we have eternal life. John didn't write this to the 144,000 Jews. By the way, those guys, are, the JWs claim that they are them or some of them are them and they can't even have any, but maybe a few left because they've all died off. But the Bible says that 144,000 aren't even sealed until the tribulation period. So they don't partake of the trumpet judgments. Hadn't even happened yet. But this is written to us, all believers. And now what's interesting is John gives various tests so we can know that we are among the saved. He gives several tests. In fact, if you're reading 1 John and you don't realize that that's a big part of his thesis is to make sure people know Jesus, you're going to miss his point. You're going to think, man, he's really redundant. Wow, John keeps saying similar things over and over again. Why is he doing that? And that's because Gnostics had infiltrated the church and they were teaching that salvation wasn't through the blood of Christ, but through secret gnosis, you know. And they were confusing people about what it meant to be saved. And John said to them straight as to who's saved and who's not. And the Gnostics taught you could just do and live however you wanted to. And that was incipient Gnostics that were thriving in the latter part of the first century that John's combating. And they basically taught a do what thou wilt kind of attitude. So you had people claiming to be born again but they weren't putting their faith in the Son of God. And they felt it came through knowledge and it didn't have to end up with a spiritual transformation of one's behavior. It just became things you know and it, empty, it reduced Christianity to being without, absolutely without the true Jesus Christ of Scripture and the fruit of what it means to know Jesus. Amen? So this is really, really critical that we understand this, that we, we check this out. Now, uh, it's interesting because I want you to go now. We're going to go back to 1 John and look at some of these tests that John gives us. We're going to take a test this morning. You know? Wait a minute. I didn't know it was going to be a test. How long have you been a Christian? Yeah. Good to see you there, Eric from Idaho. <laughs> Praise the Lord, bro. Eric Blackwell. Uh, that was you putting your baby in there then, right? When I passed you up. Yeah, I didn't say the screaming one, but yeah. <laughs> at least we knew he was alive, right? <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, John gives us all these tests to make sure we're saved. But man, John isn't the only one telling us to test ourselves to make sure we're saved. James does it in chapter 2. Paul does it, the apostle of grace. Because guess what? They don't want you to leave this earth without being right with God. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 
This is the verse that millions of people, millions of Christians ignore. Many ignore it on purpose. I invite these types of verses because I want to make sure I'm right with God. And he tells us to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're in the faith. And many try to explain this away. And guess what? Satan does not want you to examine where you're at. He doesn't want you to make sure you're saved. He wants the millions, there's millions and millions of professing Christians, I'm saying professing with their mouths, right now today in churches, throughout the Western Hemisphere, throughout the United States, Central America, South America, North America, Canada, that believe they're saved, they're in a church, but they don't examine themselves and they fail the test. Thankfully, I can tell you right now, so many people in this fellowship or that have written into our ministry through the years have praised God that God's used the ministry in their lives to show them what it meant to really be saved. People in our fellowship itself. I remember Annie and my own mom, you know, they both brought up Lutheran and they felt they were saved because they were baptized when they were babies. But they hadn't been born again. And my mom will talk about, yeah, Annie and I will talk about how we already thought we were going to heaven, but we weren't even born again. We weren't trusting Jesus, following him. There's millions of people who've been baptized as babies, feeling like they're going to heaven, but they haven't had changed hearts. They haven't received Jesus Christ. The Bible says as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Amen? Now, it breaks my heart, man. I don't want to get emotional today, but I could cry I do cry over this situation of uh, lost people in the church thinking they're saved on the day of judgment. It breaks my heart to think of what's going to happen. And there's millions of people being taught just because they went up to an altar call and they said, Jesus, come in my heart. And they're living wickedly after that, that their pastors and the teachers and evangelists told them that they're saved no matter what after that. You know, my son Josiah went on a mission trip to the Philippines and the outfit he was with told him, no, you can't share repentance with people. He's like, that's right here throughout the Bible. He showed them. And he said, in fact, I want you to, they said, in fact, at the end when people come to Christ, and Jojo saw, I don't know, scores, hundreds maybe, I don't know how many, a lot of people come to Christ when he was sharing out there. He'd share with classrooms and a ton of people come to Christ. And they said, and we want you to pray afterwards this prayer. Tell people in your prayer that, that since they've said this prayer, there always will be a Christian no matter what they do afterwards. And so how many people go back and live a life of sin and rebellion against God and they think they're going to heaven, but they actually need to do the test that we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 or chapter 13, verse 5. Look what Paul says. Test yourselves. Test yourselves. How many have examined yourselves? Same thing. There's a sister has examined yourself. Same meaning. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not know or recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you what? Fail the test. So he wants us to examine ourselves to make sure that Jesus lives within us. Not just as a concept in your brain, but that the Spirit of the living God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in your heart. As many as received him, John chapter 1, verse 12, he gave the right to become the children of God. Amen? You can't just believe in your brain as some kind of mental ascent. Yeah, Jesus Christ died for me. You have to accept him. He knocks at the door and asks to come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears, let him open the door and I'll come in and fellowship with him or sup with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, Paul clearly tells us that we need to test ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. This is one of the most ignored verses in the New Testament, folks. Now, it's interesting. Uh, some translations have disqualified, uh, failed the test, rejected. Because the Greek word, when he says, it, it, uh, failed the test, three words is actually from one Greek word, adakamos, A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S. Ah, dakamas, ah, and the prefix is ah, one letter, a, or alpha. It's the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, ah, which in the Greek nullifies the word that comes after it. It's saying you're not this. Like one who believes in theism, who is a 
Theist believes in God. But atheism or atheism means not to believe in God. The word dokamas means to pass the test. The word adakamas means to fail the test. It was used of coins in the Roman Empire at that time that had become corrupted because people would melt them down and mix them with other things so they could have more money. And then they would be tested. And if one had become impure or it was just simply counterfeit, it was pronounced adakamas in the Roman Empire at this time. Paul wants to make sure that we haven't, that we are not counterfeits, that we are genuine believers, and that we have not become impure and fallen away from the Lord. Now, it's interesting that the Easton Bible Dictionary defines the Greek word adakamas, translated failed the test here this way. That which is rejected on account of its own worthlessness this word also is used with reference to persons cast away or rejected because they have failed to make use of the opportunities offered to them. Now, Paul is warning us to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. He uses this word, the same word, of himself, with the, not in reality, but his concern that after he's preached the gospel to others, that he himself would not partake of the gospel, of salvation in the end, and that he would himself become a docomas if he didn't continue in the race. Now, Paul had confidence because he intended to continue in the race, but he gives himself as a warning that him, as A.T. Robertson, perhaps the greatest American Greek scholar who ever lived, who died some years ago, I have his word pictures in the Greek, as A.T. Robertson said, if the great apostle Paul was concerned about becoming a docomas, how much more should we be concerned? Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul uses this term in the form of a warning to the same church at Corinth who had a lot of problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Man, a wreath that's incorruptible, immortal, amen? Verse 26, Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, man. I'm not just beating the air, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really fighting, right? Verse 27, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Disqualified. Guess what the Greek word is there in the Greek New Testament? Adakamas. Every time Paul uses the dokamas relative to salvation, and, and as you see it through, used through the rest of the writers of the New Testament, it's used of being utterly rejected. It's used of being utterly rejected. Then in chapter 10, he warns. There's no chapter break in the original letter. You just keep reading. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Meaning they had all these wonderful experiences when God saved them by the Passover blood, uh, lamb's blood and took them through the sea of Moses, which is a picture of baptism. When they partook of the water that miraculously came from the rock that rock was a picture of Christ and they had a relationship with Jesus drinking from him he had saved them out of Egypt but guess what look what it goes on to say verse 5 nevertheless with most of them God was not well pleased for they lay, they were laid low in the wilderness God wiped them out verse 6 now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved, they did not make it into the promised land. They were disqualified, even though they had these salvific type experiences from Egypt. They were then disqualified on their journey and did not inherit the promised land because God laid them low in the wilderness. And these things were written for us. Why? Well, look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Pretty clear, huh? You think you're standing? Remember, if Paul could become a docomus, so could we. But Paul said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to continue in the faith. I'm going to finish my race. They started their race, but they didn't finish. The, the crown 
The incorruptible crown is not given to those who start. It is given to those who finish, amen? The Christian life is not a mere sprint up to an altar call. It's a marathon to the end of your life, amen? Now, it's quite interesting that even, and we're not Calvinists here, but even Calvinists like John Piper, and I'm not endorsing John Piper here, but even John Piper admits as a Calvinist that Paul is talking about forfeiture of salvation. He writes, quote, if Paul quit, quit the race, like that and never came back, he would be lost. He would not get the prize of salvation. He would be disqualified from the race and sent away in shame. Like a sprinter quickly of unlawful steroids. The best evidence, perhaps, that this is what Paul means is the use of the word disqualified, adakamas. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you are disqualified? The word is exactly the same uh, from 1 Corinthians 9, 27. To be disqualified means that Christ is not in you. The race has been run in vain. I can agree with everything you wrote there. Brothers and sisters, are you in the race? First of all, you have to turn to Jesus, amen? But you have to make sure that you continue to trust and follow the Lord. You see, Titus chapter 1, verse 16 says, they profess to know him, talking about people that are not really following him, but they profess to know him, but their walk doesn't match their talk. He says, they profess to know him, but by their works, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless, adakamas, for any good work. They profess to know him, but by the works they deny him. They don't pray. They don't seek the Lord. A lot of people out there claim to be Christians right now. Millions of people, millions in our country alone in churches that, that don't humbly walk before God, don't spend time with God in his word. Uh, don't, they don't hate sin. They don't pursue holiness and they just live wicked lives, drinking and cheating on each other and, and doing all kinds of illicit drugs and so forth, but claim to be Christians. Do not let that be you. Make sure you have your passport, amen? Make sure you have vital signs that indicate that you are spiritually alive. Now, there are two types of people that, three types of people that need to examine themselves to see their faith. Those who are truly following Christ and love Jesus need to look at our lives and say, am I, I'm following Christ, praise God, Amen. Hopefully that's all of you. Maybe not. I mean, we have a huge audience. We have, you know, a ton of people that watch our and listen to our podcast, Good Fight Ministry, watch our videos, millions regarding watching our videos, and thousands that listen to our messages and so forth. And, and there's going to be some of them who are doing it for intellectual stimulation. I had a guy that came here for some time and said, hey, Joe, I hope it's okay if I come here. I, just, I smoke pot first, and I come and sit in the back because I get, I get mentally stimulated by, by your messages. I'm like, dude, you need to, I'm like, I better be preaching stronger, man, because this guy, you need to be born again, dude, <laughs> you know? Uh, so we need to make sure we're born again. So, so you have two other groups beyond the, those who are saved that need, and those who are saved, when you look at the vital signs that he gives, what it means to be saved, when you look at that, you're like, praise God, I encourage you, praise God, that's me, I'm walking, I have vital signs. It shouldn't freak us out, I'm going to the doctor and he's going to check my pulse to see if I have a pulse or not. He's going to see if I'm breathing. You should be examining yourselves already to a degree. Okay, I'm breathing. You should have some peace. So when you look at these texts, and be like, oh, I don't want to look at this. That's going to scare me. That's going to freak me out. I don't want to look at that. No, God commands us to examine ourselves. By the way, it's a present tense active imperative. It means examine yourself and continue to examine yourself. It's an imperative. It means it's a command. He commands us, examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. Because he wants us, if we're not in the faith, to make sure we're right before we go, before we die. Amen. If we are in the faith to praise God, we can rejoice that we're saved. But it's the two different types of people that are lost, too. There are people that are lost who never knew Jesus. They just came in the church and they observed and maybe they picked up habits and they started doing certain things, but they were never truly born again. And Jesus talks about them when he says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, beginning at verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, okay? He says, and that's a lot, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, wait a minute. They, they, they even thought they were doing miracles. Think, think of the charismania going on today. All kinds of churches claiming to, you know, be doing all these radical miracles, yet they can care less about what God's word says about using the gifts decently and in order. They care less about what the word says about holiness, many of them. And notice the key words. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? And I, uh, now this is crazy. It's powerful. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? Does the will of my Father. And then he accuses them at the end, depart from me, you cursed, right? Well, Matthew 25, 41 through 46, he says, you cursed to uh, the, 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 the goats. But here he says, depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. What does that show you? They never repented. Well, how do you know? He's talking about specifically about false teachers here when you look at the context. False prophets that never really knew Jesus. Make sure you're not a worker of lawlessness and that you truly are seeking the will of the Father. I say these things to you because I love you as your pastor. I have to say these things. If, I, if we just want to grow a church with just people, just people for the sake of having people, we've never been about that. We've been about really knowing the Lord. I'm not going to stand before God and have God say, you didn't warn my people. Because the Lord says my people perish because of lack of knowledge. Not in this church, you're going to have knowledge. You're going to know you need to be right with God. Amen. Now, there's also another group that needs to examine themselves. And those who are those who have come to know Jesus, actually know him, and, and followed him for a time like the Apostle Paul warns and didn't continue in the race. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, we read this. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, does that describe non-believers? Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, escaping the corruption of the world by knowing Jesus. The Greek word knowing right there is the Greek word epigenosis. And that's speaking of experiential knowledge. That's why the NIV translates it, knowing him. These, these aren't people that never knew him. This is another group. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end of, than they were at the beginning it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. It would have been better for them, better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed to her wallowing in the mud. And he gets a picture of somebody who has been cleansed by the Lord's grace, by the blood of Christ, and is walking with Jesus, but then, like a pig, returns to the mud. Are you sure that's the picture? Yeah, no doubt, because in the chapter right before this, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he says, make your calling and election sure, confirm it. He says, he warns about them, warns about falling away, becoming, becoming unfruitful, and blind, and forgetting that you were washed from your old sins. It's right there, 1 John, or I'm sorry, same book we're in, I'm quoting from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. So he warns that you can forget, even forget that you were washed from your sins. And you go back to the world. So sadly, there's people in churches all over our country, all over the world, where they've never come to know him, or those who came to know him, and after knowing Jesus and escaping the corruption of the world, went back to the sewer and are living a wicked life and have been taught that no matter what they do after they come to Christ, they're saved. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And you don't have to finish the race. You just have to go up to the altar call. That's not biblical. Jesus said, the one who endures the end shall be saved. Matthew chapter 10. Mark, Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. Now, it's interesting I ask you, because I love you guys, and I know the Lord wants me to make this important. And, and every so many years, I, I preach a message just like this, very similar. But you need to make sure that you're saved. And if it suddenly became illegal in the United States of America, where it's become illegal in other countries through for the last 2,000 years, off and on, depending on where you're at, to be a practicing Christian and share your faith and so forth, and 
to truly be a Christian and they arrested you because somebody said you were a Christian, there's that old question, would they have enough evidence on you to convict you of that crime, that said crime? Or would you skate and they say, we can let you go. You can be happy. We see that you've just been a fraud. You're not really a Christian. We're so happy. Here, here's the mark of the beast. Just take it on your right hand now. Right? Hopefully you don't skate. Amen? Hopefully they take off your head or they imprison you or whatever is going to happen. Because you know what? I'd rather be saved. Amen? And lose a little temporal pleasant time here and have all eternity than deny my Lord and save you. Gave him so for me and burn in hell forever. Amen? Now, let's consider the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Go, let's go back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test, you are a dakamas. Now, the context is really interesting because... The Corinthians that Paul had won to Christ in 1 Corinthians, they're now under the spell, some of them, under, of false teachers, which Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11, a couple chapters before this, and throughout the book in different ways, who transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. It says, no wonder these super apostles that Paul calls them, because they're like super apostles, they're claiming to be the new the apostles that they need to accept now. Kind of what's happening in the church right now in Bethel down there, you know, and with the NAR movement, New Apostolic Reformation. It's interesting. He says here, uh, in there he says, no wonder for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. That is, so it's no wonder that his ministers transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness. And he says they preach a different Jesus, different gospel, and you don't receive a different spirit. He says, I've betrothed you to Christ, right? To one husband. as the church, right? He says, he warns them not to fall, get, get away from their simple devotion to Christ and receive a different gospel different Jesus and so forth. So these super apostles, and now these guys are starting to question Paul. And Paul's the one that led them to Christ. And Paul's like, examine yourselves. Because he says, hey, in the chapter 13, 1 through 5, 6, and 7, he's talking about how you guys are examining me. But examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? And by the way, if you're going to examine me, the one that led you to Christ, how could you be in the faith if I, was a, if I was false? Doesn't make sense. And if I'm true, you better make sure you're in the faith. He actually turns the table on them and says, you guys need to examine and make sure you are in the faith. And the context actually goes back to chapter 12. Go just a few verses earlier, go to the last two verses of chapter 12 and why he tells them to examine themselves to see that they're, make sure they're in the faith. Verse 20, listen to this. Paul says, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Stay away from all that stuff, guys. Amen? Don't let that stuff characterize your lives. But Paul's concerned that they still are involved in those types of things. When you read 1 Corinthians, you know what I mean. Sometimes I call it First Californians because he's dealing with a metropolis. He's dealing with this burgeoning, affluent uh, city just you know, on the coast and everything with a lot of sin. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking about how you guys are rejoicing that there's a fornicator having sex with his father's wife, at the very least his own stepmom. And you ought not be rejoicing, you ought to be mourning. You should be expelling the, expel the wicked man from your midst. Do you not know a little bit of leaven? Leaven's a whole lot. It's going to affect your whole church. And you guys are defrauding each other, he goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 8. And he says, know you not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Boy, the church needs that message today too, amen? He says, know you not, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor drunkards, nor extortioners, because they're ripping each other off, they're defrauding each other, and so forth. He goes on and on, he says, well, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. He says, but you've been washed, man. You've been justified. You've been sanctified by the Spirit of, in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of the Lord. God gave you new life. But there's some in the fellowship, the church, like that guy, who you guys are gloating over, who are off the path. 
And that's why Paul says a few chapters later, I beat my body down. So after I preach to others, I myself do not become a docomas disqualified. Examine yourselves, amen? In 1 Corinthians 11, right after that, he says, examine yourselves when you do the Lord's Supper. Make sure you're trusting Jesus. He says, some of you are sick and some of you are dying. That's why you need to examine yourself, he says, because you take it in an unworthy manner and God's disciplining you. Why? He says, so you won't be condemned with the world. God will give us spankings as Christians, amen? So we'll wake up and repent because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, what it means to truly repent. He says that the worldly sorrow leads to death. If you're just sorry because you got in trouble, but you don't change your heart, he says godly sorrow in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. But worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow is you're sorry because you've broken God's heart, because you rebelled against the one who loved you and made you, amen? The one who gave himself for you, and therefore you want to turn and repent and be right with God. Worldly sorrow is like, I'm bummed out because I got caught. Like the little kid, man, who steals his mother's money. And he gets caught and he's crying. He can cry for one of two reasons. Because he got caught and he's upset that he doesn't get to keep the money. Or because he can't believe he did that to his mom who loves him so much. Don't just be sorry because you got caught. Be sorry because you flung a thousand arrows of sin in the heart of God who loves you and made you. Amen? Amen. And he's telling them about true repentance. So when you go to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and you read, test yourselves to see that you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not know, recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. In verse 20, he says he's concerned that they're still going to be involved in, in rebellion. Then in verse 21, look what he says, key verse. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past. That's interesting. Because when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you guys are rejoicing that this guy's having sexual relations with his, like they're celebrating with his father's wife. Well, some of us are like, I know, it's like, why would they be rejoicing? Because they were under the lie Oh, we're saved by grace. It doesn't matter how you live now. That's why Paul follows it up by saying, do not be deceived. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, if you think the unrighteous will inherit God's kingdom, you're deceived. Then he says, neither fornicators, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, and so forth will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying here, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn he said they ought not be celebrating 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They ought to be mourning. And that's a word used for funerals, for crying at a funeral, a death. You ought to be mourning over that guy. And Paul said to take that wicked man and excommunicate him. And the hope was that he'd repent. It says hand his, hand his flesh over what? To Satan, right? Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that a spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. So they're supposed to say to this wicked man, say he was here and there's a guy having relations with his father's wife. And the church is like, it's cool, man, we're all saved by grace. I'd say, you guys, if you think that's cool, that's going to let you think you can get away with anything and that leaven's going to spread throughout the entire church and corrupt our entire fellowship. The elders and I would get together and th those right-minded believers in our fellowship would say, yeah, we need to ask that man to repent. And if he's not going to repent, he can't be here. And you hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Maybe some serious venereal disease or whatever God allows. And then he's outside of the visible representative representation of God's kingdom on earth, which is the church, which is not the kingdom of God, but part of the kingdom of God. Then he's outside because the kingdom of God is, uh, the Bible says that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, amen. We belong to Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. So now he's put back in the world where there's just darkness. And under Satan's power, and the hedge has come up, and Satan is allowed to just wail on him. And hopefully that'll bring him to his senses so his spirit may be saved in the day of, uh, day of salvation. Hopefully he'll repent. Hopefully he'll turn back to God. In fact, that's what church discipline is about. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, remember he talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme because they were false teachers that were leading people away from the gospel. 
He wanted them to learn. It's remedial. It's not, oh, see you later, man, you're going to hell. It's like, hopefully you'll get it and you'll turn back to the Lord. And by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, praise God, that's happened in 1 Corinthians we read about. In 2 Corinthians, guess what? This guy came back to the Lord in chapter 2. At least it appears to be this man. It doesn't give him his name. If I was that guy, I'd be like, thank you, God, for not putting my name in 2 Corinthians. I don't want anybody to know who I am in heaven. I got over it. I'm, I repented, you know. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says to forgive this man. He says, I've forgiven him if I had anything to forgive. He says, forgive him. Two, three things. He says, forgive him. And then he says, to confirm your love to him. And then he says, to comfort him. By the way, when somebody comes back to the Lord, you shouldn't be looking down your bony finger, pointing at them and condemning them. You should be like the prodigal son's father, showing them love and grace and mercy, amen? Because they've come back to Christ, you should be rejoicing. What happens when just one sinner comes to repentance? Jesus said the angels of God rejoice and there's joy in heaven and greater joy over one sinner that comes to repentance than over many that need no repentance. Amen? And we ought to rejoice when someone comes back and we ought to encourage them in Christ. And I love it because uh, the father killed the fatty calf, you know, threw a big party for his son. When someone comes back, you need to make sure that you comfort them that you love them, and that you forgive them if they've sinned against you. And that's where Paul says, for we're not, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. One of Satan's greatest devices is to get you not to forgive, get you to be an unforgiving, bitter person. That's why Jesus, when he gave us a, the, what we often call the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer, because he never prayed it, he never prayed forgive us our sins, he never sinned. When we read that scripture in that passage and we pray that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, one of the things we pray, you remember, forgive us what? Our sins. Forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us, yeah, forgive us as we're forgiving others. In other words, if you refuse to forgive others, Jesus goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 12, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, neither shall your Father in heaven forgive you. Wow. In Mark 11, Jesus says, when you stand praying, make sure you forgive others so you too can be forgiven. That's why James says mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Amen? Be merciful. That's just an evidence that you're following Jesus when you forgive people and you're merciful. Amen? Praise God. So it's a imperative that we understand that God wants us to be filled with love and grace and mercy. Now look at what he says to these Corinthians though. Verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, and my, that my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned. Look at this. Who have sinned. Talking about the first letter he wrote to them. They were in sin. They have sinned in the past, and what? And have not what? You see that? What does it say? They have not repented. Catch that? This is important, guys. Listen again. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented, have not repented, have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. They have practiced. That's key. Because guess what? None of us are close to perfect. Amen? All of us are under construction. If you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, your faith is in him. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're not under condemnation. But guess what we are under? We're all under construction, amen? We've been made new creations in Christ, but he continues to transform us and make us like the image we fell from, which is the very image of God, amen? And it says he works all things together for the good, for those who love God and others are called according to his purpose. And he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. God's making us more and more like him, like his son. We're under construction. But the question is, are you under construction? Are you growing in grace? Are you being transformed because you're seeking the Lord? Because the Holy Spirit's working in your heart because you're in his word. This is all vital. It's important. So after he says, I'm concerned that when I come, I'm going to mourn like at a funeral because there's going to still be people there who have still not repented of their immorality and their sensuality. He's concerned. It's in that context, thus saith the scripture, that he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves, to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you unless you are a dakamas. Are you with me this this morning, amen? It's very, very clear. 
I've seen a lot of commentaries try to explain this verse away, verse 5. Oh, well, we don't really need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith and so forth. By the way, repentance is, for the last 2,000 years in church history, up until very recently, it was considered an absolute necessity that you need to have true faith was a repentant faith. In fact, three times in Scripture, you see repent and believe in the same verse. Repentance is always right before believe. Because you can't have true faith unless you repent. It's like two sides of the same coin we call conversion. Why? Because faith is to put trust in Jesus, amen? Amen? It's to put trust in Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus, amen? That's faith. But the Bible talks about the elementary principles of the scripture it calls them, the ABCs of the scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, 1 and 2. You know what lists one of the elementary principles of the scripture? Repentance from dead works and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is from, you can also say it's toward because you're turning from and toward someone, but faith is toward or in Christ. But I can't turn and put my faith in Christ unless I also what? I'm turning what? From Satan, amen? I can't turn and get on the narrow road that Jesus said leads to life unless I turn from the broad road that leads to destruction. So that's why repentance is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 6, the first couple of verses, as repentance from dead works, man, that don't bring salvation. Sin. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a heart that's trusted in Jesus, guess what? That means you turn from someone. You turn from the devil. The Bible says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It says, submit therefore to God, which is a military uh, term for 180. It means to fall in rank, you know, under your general. Submit to God. Resist the devil. That's repentance, turning from the devil. And what? Draw near to God. Now, he's already drawn near to us. He's the one knocking, amen, calling us and giving us the power and the ability by his prevenient grace to turn to him as he draws us by his spirit, amen? But we have the responsibility to respond to his call. And that's repentant faith. That's why Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, unless you repent, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a suggestion. Unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. It means go to hell. In case we missed it, two verses later, verse 5, he says it again, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you have the Great Commission. You have the Great Commission to go out and be witnesses to the nations. And Jesus said to go to the nations, sharing his death and his resurrection. He said, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's part of the Great Commission. Yet you have millions of people who've never repented that are in churches. Oh, I just taught, in my mind, I just believe what Jesus did and I'm saved no matter what. But they're living wicked lives, cheating on their wives or vice versa. They're, you know, just filled with anger and malice and bitterness and unforgiveness toward people. And they haven't repented. That's heartbreaking. Because the first step in conversion is repentance and faith. Can you imagine you're watching a little league championship and you're watching the game and it's like, wow. It's like, they're down by one, the team that's up to bat. It's the last inning. There's two outs. Little guy gets up there to hit the ball. He's a pinch hitter. It's the first time he, they're actually, you know, he's new to the team because they had a couple people out sick and they're putting him up and he's up there and his dad's the coach. Well, his dad's the coach they brought on, let him, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll let my kid play on your team. He's really good if you let me coach too. And the kid's up to bat. Pitch is pitched, man. He slams that ball, man. He pulls it into left field, down the line. It gets lost in the corner. The kid takes off, running. You know, tags the pitcher mound. Skips first base. and goes right across the Chris mound, the pitcher's mound, right to second base. Takes a hard left, hits third. They throw the ball in. He slides to home. Safe. Coaches, the assistant coach, which is his dad, is like, yeah, he's a winning run. Coach is like, out of there. Sorry, ump, you're out. Kid jumping up and down of just hysterically happy, all of a sudden hysterical tears, can't believe it. He just got a home run. Dump says, no, you didn't. I'm sorry, you didn't get a home run. 
You, you skip first base. You can't run straight to second, third, and home. It doesn't count. Kids in tears. The assistant coach comes out yelling at the up. That's my kid. He's safe. The ball came late. He got there. He goes, no, he missed first base. I taught my kid how to play this game. You didn't teach him to go to first. You're a bad coach. Guess what? A lot of coaches out there in the church are telling people they can skip first base. That's what's happening. You just go right to second, man. And you're home free. You're going to be in heaven. And as sad as that would be for that little kid, it's going to be a way sadder for potentially millions of people who refuse to repent and don't examine themselves and make sure that they've touched first base and that they've turned from a life of rebellion against God. Amen? Now, guys, understand this. That doing good things is not repentance. Doing good things is the fruit of repentance. Remember, Paul said in Acts 26 to King Agrippa that I preach that people should do works that are in accord or meet with repentance, meaning they line up with repentance. Remember, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees at his baptism, why are you even here? He said, you snakes, you brood of vipers. The ax is already laid to the root of the tree. And he said to them, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance, some people teach wrongly that repentance is doing a bunch of good things. That's not repentance. Or the Catholic Church will say, you have to do penance and do enough good things and then you'll be forgiven. No, that's, salvation's a free gift, amen? Repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, whereby you leave the master that you were serving in your heart and turn to Christ and put your faith in him for salvation, amen? But when you repent and put your faith, you turn from rebellion against God to put your faith in Christ, guess what? The fruit of that, your, the good works that come out of that is the fruit of your repentance, amen? The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love and peace and joy and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and meekness. So when you repent, you have a change of heart where you embrace Jesus Christ, amen? But if you're truly embracing Jesus, guess what's gonna happen? You can't embrace Jesus without being changed, amen? Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new, amen? You can't stick your a piece of metal attached to your hand into, you know, 200 and some volts of electricity without being changed dramatically. Jesus is far more powerful than the voltages of electricity. He made the universe, amen? When you come to Jesus, he changes you. Now you might say, I've come to Jesus, but I, I... hey, has there been a change in your life, man? Have you become a new creation? Do you have a, do you have a desire and a hunger and a thirst for him now? That's the key is, are you, are you now following him? Is there evidence? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Are you with me this, this, this morning? Wow. You know, in 1 John, we have a number of vital signs, but I want to encourage you to go to James chapter 2 now before we go to 1 John, which we probably will get to in a part 2 of this message. Uh, so we'll just go to James for now. Go to James chapter 2. James also tells us, like Paul, like John and 1 John, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. James chapter 2. Because there were people in the churches that James was addressing. That, oh, well, I'm saved by grace through faith. But they're living wicked lives. They weren't living for the Lord. There was no evidence that they were truly in the faith. Oh, I'm in the faith. But he says, verse 14 what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no what? Works. Can that faith save him? That's the key. We're saved by grace through faith, but there's different types of faith. There's phony faith and there's real faith. And he's saying, if someone has faith and they say I have faith, but they have no evidence, can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, 
if it has no works, is dead. It's dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith, James says, by what? My works. You believe that God is one? It's a lot of people say, I believe that Jesus, that God is one. You do well, that's good. True, it's good. The demons also believe and shudder. I mean, even the demons believe, but they're not saved. Amen? You can believe the right thing in your brain, but that's not what saves you. It's Christ who saves you through faith, a living relationship with him. Amen? Amen. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. And the demons have more, more evidence for their faith than many believers. At least they fear God. At least they shudder. But so many professing believers today are arrogant and don't fear God at all. And they have less faith than a demon. And demons certainly aren't saved. Thus saith the Lord. Amen? Amen. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? Useless. It's dead, man. That's powerful. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scriptures was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now Abraham believed God years before he offered up Isaac on the altar. He was already justified, made right with God through faith, right? But guess what? His works justified the reality of his faith and showed that it was real. In fact, the word justified, we know we're justified by grace through faith, amen? That not of ourselves the gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone, amen? However, the, the faith that is alone when we're justified is never alone in regard to fruit. It always produces fruit. Because Galatians 5, 5, 6 says, faith works through love. If we're truly trusting Jesus, we're going to follow him. Amen? So what, what do you mean? That, that, so we're saved by grace through faith and we're justified by the gift of God. Amen? The free gift of God. We're saved as a gift. Amen? Well, how does works justify our faith? Works justifies our faith in that it gives evidence that our faith is real. Because that word, Greek word justified there, is used by Jesus, of, it's translated vindicated in some translations. He says, wisdom is justified by all her children, Jesus said. The word vindicated. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is proven to be wisdom because you look at his children and it's like, wow, that's wisdom. Look at the children, turn out great. Wisdom is vindicated or justified by all children. In the same way, our works vindicate the fact that our faith is real. Amen. Abraham was saved by grace through faith when he believed on the Lord long before he offered up Isaac, but offering up Isaac showed that his faith is genuine. Israel, are you with me? And it says, and the scripture fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, verse 23, as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the, the works come in to give evidence that our faith is real. They don't save us. Our faith, our grace saves us through faith, but they give evidence that we're for real. In fact, go ahead and look at verse 26. He kind of sums it up there. For just as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. So also faith without works is what? It's dead, you guys. You, if you have faith, but you don't have any evidence of your faith, it's a dead faith. And James is telling us, don't think that you're saved because you believe in your brain that, that Jesus died for your sins or that God is one. Even the demons believe that God, God is one and they, and they shudder, but it doesn't save them. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross, amen? It's having a vital relationship with him through faith. It's recognizing that I'm a sinner and that I need to be forgiven. It's embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he died for our sins and rose again, amen? And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's calling upon his name and actually seeking him in faith, not just knowing what he did, but saying, Lord Jesus, save me, amen? And then when you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, amen? And you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, it says, and Romans 10, 9 and 10, thou shalt be saved, amen? Then you're saved. 
Because now, guess what? You just don't believe. I can believe that that chair will hold me up. But that chair isn't holding me up until I actually sit in that chair. Amen? Amen. You can believe that Jesus died to save you. But he doesn't save you until you embrace him through faith and put your trust in him. Amen? Amen. And that faith is a repentant faith. That's a faith that says, I want to hate sin. I want to embrace you now, Jesus. I can't believe I did these things against you. Thank you for dying for me. Amen? And the Bible says, Jesus said, he that believes in him, continuous or present tense, has passed from death to life and shall not come into condemnation. Amen? What a beautiful promise. If you're trusting Jesus for your salvation right now. Amen? And you're truly, he's first in your life. He's the one you're trusting. You've passed from death to life and you will not come into condemnation. Amen? What a beautiful promise that is. I only got through half my message, but that's okay. We're going to have part two. Because we have to go through 1 John. 1 John gives 12 vital signs that show what a true believer looks like. It's, that's how we further examine that. That book was written so you can know that you have eternal life. Amen? Any more important question on this planet as to where you're going forever? Yes or no? No. So I'll see you next week. Amen? Hopefully I'll see you Wednesday night. But hopefully I'll see you like Sunday too for part two of this message. Can we all please stand and pass out the bread and the cup?